You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 225. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today, I'm speaking to you from London, and I have a very exciting topic to share today. We are talking about the role that the heart plays when it comes to our bodies and how it interacts with our brains. Yes, we often think of our organs as kind of doing their own roles rather independently, or if anything, often we think of our brains in our heads sending guidance to the lower organs. It's kind of a top-down mentality. However, the people over at heartmath.com have been studying the power of the heart-brain connection and the power of the heart overall in our lives, not just from a spiritual perspective, but they've been studying the science behind the actual organ known as the heart within ourselves as well since 1991. I first found out about heart-brain coherence and the power of syncing our heart waves with our brain waves in January or February when I saw Greg Braden speak in Melbourne. And as he brought up this power of the heart-brain coherence and all the biochemicals that are released when you have your heart waves syncing with your brain waves, all of the healing, all of the benefits, all of the rejuvenation, all of the anti-aging properties, all of the good feelings, literally the oxytocin, the other things that are happening within our bodies that happens really when we sync the heart with the brain. That was super powerful. And also when we're not in that heart-brain coherence, all of the destruction and stress that comes as a result. So I knew I wanted to bring this topic to you guys in some fashion on the show. And today, that's what exactly what we're doing. I have asked Howard Martin of HeartMath.com directly to come on as a spokesperson for HeartMath to explain the power of this and the science behind this. Because often we hear about the power of the heart from a Disney perspective, a spiritual perspective, religion, etc. We will speak and write poetry about it, but how often do we actually try to connect the physical organ with those more esoteric topics? Well, this is exactly what we're going to discuss today and get really nitty gritty about the power of of using the science of actually practically syncing your actual heart waves with your brain waves to start to tap into all of those good feeling emotions and all of the biochemicals that get released in your body as a result. This first half of this episode, I'll warn you, is very nitty gritty into the science because as you know, I am fascinated by learning about this connection between these subjects that used to be very spiritual and very vague and very not practical and bridging the science to the spirit. So that's what we're going to focus on is a lot of the science right now. And then about 40 to 45 minutes through the episode, we're going to do an actual example of how you can start getting your heart waves to sync with your brain waves here during the show itself. So you can actually start to feel what this heart brain coherence looks like for yourself. Let's go to the show. Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Jess, I'm pleased to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. You've got a great show, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation, hopefully one that everybody walks away with feeling a little bit better about themselves. Awesome. Well, I hope so, too, and I've got many questions for you, but let's first start with how you got to where you are. Well, it's been a long journey, obviously. I've been doing this now for over 40 years, 
As a young man, I had a very different lifestyle. My ambition and my pursuit of life was through music. I started playing the drums when I was nine years old, and it was became a, a point of focus for me. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I was playing with people that had records out. And I lived in that world for a very long time into my early 30s. But, you know, early on, I became interested in spiritual pursuit. It was almost trendy back then. You know, the Beatles had the Maharishi and all that was happening. And I met people who had an understanding of that, began to read some books about spiritual subjects and was fascinated by it. And I started having some realizations that my life had to be about continuous growth. I believe that that was the purpose of life, that everything living was designed to grow, to change, to adapt. Let me stop you right there. I have recently come to that conclusion from looking at the universe and how it's expanding at an ever-increasing rate through science. But how did you at a young age come to that conclusion? Well, it was an inner feeling that I had, first of all, Jess. But you know, if I looked around, look, let's say nature, for example. You know, nature is always evolving. It's adapting. It's trying to improve. It's adapting to its circumstances. It's growing. It's producing something. You know, and I just felt that you know, what's the purpose of being here? Is it just to exist? Is it just to to achieve external ambitious goals? To make money? to have the perfect relationship. It just didn't feel like that was the total purpose of it all, that there was something deeper and it was about growth. It was about change. Now I didn't know how that was going to play out for me, but I just felt like that was had to be a core of whatever I did. Well, okay. I feel like there's still more to that. Was there a specific moment or for myself growing up with the lifestyle that I was raised in, I was able to see parts of the American work hard, play hard lifestyle were not as a child of that really fulfilling for at least me as a child. So it kind of helped me get through some things faster than maybe they would have had I not had those experiences. Was there anything that you experienced that got you there? Well, it wouldn't be a particular moment in time, but there was a summer in my life when things began to change. You know, when I was like, you know, 18, 19 years old, I was in music, but I was also in college and I was in the typical fraternity boy modality and all of that. And the band that I was in at the time, you know, had a problem. I was, it was a professional band. It was, it was a big soul review band and had a problem. And I, I went away for the summer and I came back home and I met friends and they had gone through a change. You know, they weren't into the frat boy type of consciousness anymore and they were into something different. And so I began to explore that. And during that summer, I went through a major transformation and my values changed. It was, it was in the, it was in the late sixties. And then during that time period, there was a big opening that was changing a lot of people very quickly. You know, whether there were drugs involved or not, it's not the point. It was like there was something else going on. A, a shift in consciousness was happening. We were getting sneak previews into what could be. Uh, it was like a, you know, an opportunity to, to make a major shift that had to be matured through and played out through the rest of our lives. But there was an opening that allowed us to begin to see, people began to see, that there was a different world, a different way of living, a different perspective on things. And so that summer was very important for me. So by the time, you know, the summer ended, I was a different person in many ways than the one that, you know, had, had entered the summer. And that's what led me into then wanting to know more. And that's when I read books. I mean, one of the books that I read, which millions of people read at the time, was a, a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. So that was the first book that really bridged East and West, that one that became popular. And so a lot of young people back then started reading Autobiography of a Yogi. And that book was interesting. Well, I couldn't believe it. It was just something I never thought of, never knew about before. And so that book was like an opening. And as a result of reading that book, I decided that it was time to take a road trip. And so I hitchhiked to California and back during that summer. 
And it was an amazing journey. It was an adventure. It was an exploration. It was a letting go of, of a lot of things to come up with something new. And, it, and that particular trip was a life changer for me as well. You know, out exploring the world on my own, hitchhiking, you know, uh, from the East Coast to West Coast and back. And so those changes began to take place. And then I had this fortuitous experience where I met a man named Doc Childry. And Doc Childry is the man who is the founder of HeartMath, the organization I'm with today. And Doc was just a little bit older than me. He's only four years older than I am. But Doc was carrying himself with an intelligence that was obvious to me that he embraced mine. And he had some very interesting things to say to me. And they were important as a young man in terms of how he was providing some insight and guidance for me. But, you know, Jess, at first I didn't like it. Yeah, what did he tell you? Of course I have to ask. He was penetrating down into my own ego and to asking me to ask questions about myself and various things. And, and when I first was, you know, being around him, it was like, I'm not sure I like this guy. He's way too smart, you know, because <laughs> he could see inside of me, right? He could see something inside me. And I remember one day he came to my house and I've only told this story one time in any interview ever, I think. And he came to my house and I saw him coming up the sidewalk and I decided to pretend as if I wasn't there. Why? Well, I didn't want him to see him. I didn't want to, you know, to, even though he was very kind, I didn't want that type of, let's put it this way, challenge to my own ego perceptions of who and what I was. But he came, but I let him in and he came in and he sat down on the side of the bed with me and he looked at me and he said, look, he said, let me explain to you what's going on here. He said, I'm not trying to be your teacher. I'm not trying to be your guru. I'm not trying to do any of that stuff. He said, all I am is a man who's trying to bring out the greatness and great people. And that's all I'm trying to do for you. And he said it with such heart that it hit me right in the heart. It was like a visceral experience of like, you know, the feeling of his love for me as a person. And so within that experience, I began to understand that he was only trying to help me. He was not trying to be an overlord to me. Or again, he was never positioned himself as a teacher or something. He was just trying to help and he was caringly doing so. And so I began to accept Doc in that way and we became friends and our friends and, and close associates today, 40 some years later. And eventually my spiritual pursuit, my interest in, in that part of me led me to other realizations that I had to get out of the music business, that living those two different lifestyles was just not going to work. And it was a hard choice for me because when your identity is wrapped up in something like in the music business and you're having some success and you're living in a, a more glamorous and stimulating lifestyle, you don't want to hear the voice of the heart that says you need to do something else. <laughs> so it took me a long time to go through a process of reaching a conclusion that it was time to move on. And it happened because life eventually put me in positions where those choices had to be made. And so I know it sounds kind of wimpy, but to me, that making that choice to leave music and to pursue the unknown was probably the hardest choice I ever had to make. Really? Was it just because it was the first choice of stepping into the unknown? Yeah, you have to move away from Here's your identity. It's all wrapped up in who you are as a musician. It's wrapped up in the associations and friendships that you have around that. It's being fueled by glamour and stimulation. And you're finding in your heart that you need to do something else, but you don't even know what that is. And that you're going to have to jump off a cliff and give all that up. And there are no guarantees of what that will be for you. And that's a scary place to be. I eventually did it. You know, life did not reward me overtly because I did it. 
you know, I mean, I remember the feeling after I left, and it was rather dramatic. I won't get into all the drama that was around it, but rather dramatic scenarios that unfolded as I tried to extricate myself from the music business in the middle of a record deal. And I felt really good and empowered after I did it. It felt like, wow, maybe I'm really finally becoming a true man for the first time. But then the reality comes in. It has to be integrated in. Then I'm living in a mobile home in eastern North Carolina in a town of 600 people with nothing around me but Doc and my friends. And that was a lot, of course, to have Doc and my friends. But I had to do things like get a real job for the first time. And I had to live poor. And I didn't have the same stimulation. And I didn't have the same ego props. And many of the people that I knew that were my friends in that world couldn't relate to me as a different person. So I lost those friends. And there I was, me and me. And went through that self-exploration process for a very long time, for about eight years, where I had no relationships. I lived poor. Uh, I put first things first. My job, whatever I could get, was just a job to provide you know, some transportation and a place to live. And my time was spent on really trying to find out who I was to dig deeper inside my own heart. And in doing so, I found that there was something magnificent in there that all people have. There was a place inside ourselves that can and does lift us beyond our problems, even in the midst of chaos and confusion. And it had been talked about a lot for thousands of years, but what we're talking about is heart. And what I found was an intelligence, an intelligence that provides intuitive guidance. It gives birth to the feelings and emotions that we revere the most, like more compassion, care, love those kind of feelings. And it provided the ongoing motivation and inspiration to continue to do what I had said I wanted to do, which is to be living a life of continuous growth. Okay. So that's what got you into heart math. Yep. So Doc, myself and others were living in Eastern North Carolina. We would meet regularly. We stayed in very, very close contact. We took on different exercises and disciplines to explore ourselves and we unfolded our own consciousness. And we didn't have an ambition to be an organization and never thought about it, really. And we certainly didn't think of ourselves as people that would be authors or speakers. And over time, though, I think the purity of that pursuit, Jess, was magnetic. And it began to draw people to us, even though we were living in obscurity in a place where most people don't even go. But people were drawn to us for some reason. And I think it was because there was something about the purity and the way we were approaching it that was magnetic. But Doc was never an ambitious person, and we didn't start heart math just because, hey, we had an insight. It took years. And at a certain point, with right timing, it was decision was made that we should try to, to formulate some sort of a system we could share with the world that would be based upon what we learned, that we felt could be beneficial to others, and that that system and our motivation from doing it should be based upon the care we had for people, And also upon the realization that the world was in a tough spot and it was going to get tougher and that we could make a contribution in some way that could help that. You know what's so interesting about that is what your story is telling me and showing me is that the journey I've been flowing on this year around the world has flowed me into the path of many people that are going through a similar awakening and quickening, and they're going through similar times of change and strife, obviously, in our current climate and situation. And what you're saying just seems like a, like we're a ripple again of a very similar time right now to what you experienced then. Would you say that's similar? Yes. And how old are you, Jess? I'm 32. So you're a millennial, right? Yes. 
Okay, what I find interesting is that people in the millennial ranges, I'm talking in generalizations now, have a very resonant feeling with me. And I think that there's very little age difference feeling about that. It's almost like, you know, we're souls from the same place that got here just a little bit, you know, difference in time. Yeah, like ripples, right? Yeah, that's right. Like the, the stone fell and like there's one ripple and now there's another. Yeah, some of my new audience that comes to see me speak when I'm out speaking around the world are millennials. You know, it used to be only baby boomers. Now I'm seeing a lot of millennials showing up. There are new heart math executives here that we brought in at executive levels that are millennials that I relate to extremely well. And it doesn't feel like there's a, a, an age difference or a gap there. It feels like there's another resonant frequency that's there heart to heart that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're 32 or I'm 67. That's amazing. Okay, so how does this get us to the heart math of the where it is today? And how does science get involved? Because so far, nothing has been mentioned about science, which is a big part of heart math. It is. And, you know, our exploration was an exploration of heart. When we decided to form heart math and we joined with others that were based here in California to start heart math, we, we realized that, okay, if we're going to put together a system that's about heart, we want to share it with that world and we want it to have a mainstream impact, we better do heart a bit differently. Because heart's been talked about an awful lot, and people tend to write it off as soft or sweet or sentimental. They revere it in one way and then don't really pay much attention to it in another. So we felt we needed a bridge between what people intuitively sensed about heart, what had been said about it philosophically and spiritually, and day-to-day living. We chose science to be that bridge. And the reason we chose science is because in our society, something understood empirically takes on more belief and respect. So we use science to build a bridge between the understandings that we had at some level of heart and what could be proven. So our science was never intended, and it hasn't, uh, taken the heart out of heart. What it's done is give it a powerful foundation that's allowed heart to be accepted in a much wider audience and allowed us to work with and be involved with people from all walks of life and organizations from Fortune 100 companies to the military because we have science to support what we say and that it ties to and directly relates to an understanding of heart. Yes, I have talked about this a lot on the show around the permission slip, so to speak, that science gives our society to actually try something, even though, as you say in the book, that people intuitively already know and feel something. But that science, I think it's the left brain, if the, you know, brain studies are somewhat accurate, as far as we know, that that logical brain, that coherent part of ourselves What are your thoughts on why science is so important for our society right now? Well, again, you're exactly right. Society focuses a lot on what can be understood scientifically. That's what creates, you know, foundational beliefs about what is real and what's not. And I think that, you know, that's just the way we function. And you're right. Most people are approaching life from just the, the neck up. And so the mind has to be satisfied in a sense to believe more deeply in the heart. You have to get up to the top for it to look down. That's right. So if you get engaged with science, then it suddenly makes what the people have sensed about heart or what they've read about heart make a lot more sense. So our research has gone far beyond just looking at heart-brain-body interactions. We're now into energetic connectivity and, you know, lots of different things that are really cool that are leading us into a whole new understanding of our world and of society. But at the very foundation of our research, what we were able to show through finding research that others had done and through our own research is that the heart at the physical level is a lot more than an organ just pumping blood. It's actually a very powerful information processing center in our bodies. Can you explain more about that? Because I know people might be wondering how so or what else is there. 
Yeah, sure. Well, we know, for example, that the heart is communicating with the brain and the rest of the body. It's sending information, and it does it in four ways. The first way is neurological. We have this very complex nervous system in the heart. Next to the brain, it's the most complex part of the nervous system that we have. And it's actually studied through a field called neurocardiology. And neurocardiologists call this the brain and the heart. And that little nervous system is sending information all the way up into the higher perceptual centers of our brain. So there's a conversation that's constantly happening between our heart and our brain. Uh, the brain is sending information down to the heart that influences the timing of the heartbeat. But when you map out neurological traffic in the body, you can clearly see that the heart is sending a heck of a lot more information to the brain than it gets from the brain. So it's influencing brain function. And that's your first way. It's a neurological communication. It is amazing because I keep hearing and I've been learning about the heart-brain coherence and the heart-brain, but what you just said helped me visualize and capture the nervous system. That So basically, the cerebral brain is just a mega huge nervous system that is basically a system of neurons. So the system of neurons in the heart would be just a smaller version or a, a less of that, but the same thing. Like it's, it's, so when you say brain, it's not like when I think of the gray matter that's in the, the cerebral brain, a brain is a collection of neurons, which is a nervous system. Yeah, well, obviously they're very different, but what's interesting is that, you know, as neurocardiologists research this nervous system, they discovered that the heart actually contains neurons, which are the same thing you find in the brain. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Now, they only, there's only about 40,000 neurons in the heart, and there's billions in the brain, but the fact that neurons were in the heart at all was a big discovery. I know a lot of people, when I was learning about heart-brain coherence with Greg Braden, had the same feeling I had, which is, and I haven't read the books on it, but I know people have studied the gut and how many, I don't know if it's actually neurons. I don't, I haven't studied it yet, but that there is a brain in the gut. Is there neurons there too? And there's a, are there more or less in the heart? It's a good question about the neurons. What I do know about the gut brain is this, this is a lot less sophisticated than the one in the heart. It's a bundle of nerves that resides in what we would call the solar plexus. This nervous system does communicate with the brain, but here's the difference between the nervous system in the heart and the gut brain. The gut brain sends information up to the brain only as far as the first level brain, the instinctual centers. The limbic brain? No, not even that far. Not the limbic. No, you know, just to the very first level of brain, you know, the reptilian brain is where that nerve pathway stops. It stops right there. The heart, on the other hand, sends information that goes through the brain all the way through the limbic system and then terminates in the neocortex, the higher perceptual centers of the brain. So the heart's nervous system is more sophisticated and it's sending information to higher perceptual centers. The gut brain is more reactive, more instinctual. Basically, you know, the lowest level of brain that we have is where that information goes. And so, we, yeah, we do feel a knot in our stomach when something upsets us. That's that nervous system in the gut that's activating. But it's not communicating the same type of information, and the brain's not getting the same type of a response from the gut brain that it gets from the heart. Wow, there's three things going on here, communicating with each other, and each one seems to have their own different personality. What I find, you know, look at, let's say through spiritual practice, for example, let's say when I'm doing my heart meditations, sometimes I like to focus on, you know, bringing in the groundedness that the gut brain provides. But what I've found through my own experience, and I'm talking non-scientifically now, I'm talking experientially, is that the gut brain is working best when it's under the direction of the heart. So it's kind of directing the cerebral brain and the gut brain? 
It can, yes. It's central to everything. It's just right in the middle if you think about it. And, you know, we're finding that the heart influences lots of different biological functions and that it not only sends information, but it actually receives information. This is huge. I mean, people are thinking there's kind of a, or at least we've been trained in our schooling to think of things from a top-down mentality. But this is kind of going up and down from the middle. Yeah, if you think about it this way, rather than looking at it top-down, think about like a, a wheel, and at the center of that wheel, there's a hub, and then there's spokes that go out from that hub. To me, the heart is at the hub of the wheel. Okay, and then you said there's four parts. So we've just talked about the nervous system. What are the other three? The other three are this. First of all, there's what's called a biophysical communication, and that's created through the blood pressure wave. When we place our finger on our wrist and we feel our pulse, what we're really feeling is a wave of energy that's pushing the blood through the veins and arteries. It's created by the squeezing of the heart muscle. This blood pressure wave obviously travels throughout our entire physical system, which is how blood gets everywhere. And the blood pressure wave changes and modulates depending upon how the heart is beating rhythmically. The changes that happen in the blood wave are influencing other biological functions such as the brain. It turns out that the electrical activity in our brains are synchronized to changes that are occurring in the blood pressure wave. So as the heart beats differently, the blood pressure wave changes. Those blood pressure wave changes affect electrical activity in the brain and therefore our perception. How therefore our perception? Yep. So we start to feel and see things differently is relative to what the heart's sending to the brain through the blood pressure wave. And that's just your second way. The other ways get even cooler. The third way is, is biochemically. Here's one of these things, Jess, that was interesting. It was in the research literature, but it was basically hidden. In 1983, the heart was reclassified as not just being a cardiovascular organ, but also part of our hormonal system. The reason for that is that it was discovered that the heart produces a number of very important hormones. One of those, for example, is called atrial peptide. And one of atrial peptide's jobs is to mediate or reduce the release of the stress hormone cortisol. So I found this is pretty cool. We got a hormone being produced by the heart that's trying to back off a stress hormone. Wow. Can you say that again in another way so we can really fully understand that? Yeah. The heart's producing a hormone called atrial peptide. Atrial peptide's job is to make sure that we're not, or to try to make sure we're not producing too much cortisol. So it's calming down our stress, basically. It's calming down the hormonal response to stress. And how does it do that? Or is that what we're getting to with heart-brain coherence? Well, you know, I don't know exactly how it does it, but you have a, a hormone that's, that's sort of counteracting the excessive amount of cortisol that's produced in our system when we're stressed. But let me also explain that it produces other hormones. One of the most important ones is uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin is a very regenerative hormone that's being produced when we are in loving states. Is that only from the heart? I thought that was in the head, too. No, it's in the brain. It's also in the heart. The debate is around what's producing more. Some researchers believe the heart is producing the most oxytocin of anything in the body. I did not know that. Yeah. So you have this biochemical communication going on. Now, these first three ways that I've described are neurological, biophysical, and biochemical. And they are well understood, well researched, well documented. The fourth way is where it gets the most interesting to me. Because now we're going to move from biology into physics. The heart is an electrical organ. It produces by far the strongest source of bioelectricity in our body, 40 to 60 times more than the second most powerful source, which is our brain. When we go to a doctor and the doctor does their electrocardiogram, they're measuring electricity produced by the heart. That's why they call it an electrocardiogram. So 
electricity I tend to think of as in the brain because there's so many neurons firing and I tend to think that that's where that electricity is coming from. But it's how much stronger in the heart? 40 to 60 times more electrical power produced by the heart than the brain. So it's not based on neurons at all then? No, it's based on you know, electrical charge and the heart puts out you know, through its beating process. The beating process. Okay, I thought it was from the neurons firing. It's not. It's through the beating process. Well, the heart has what's called pacemaker cells, which create the beating of the heart. And those cells automatically fire. What's interesting about those cells and about the heart in general is that the source of the heartbeat actually resides in the heart itself. Here's what I mean by that. Simplistically, I used to think that the brain was making my heart beat, but that's not the case. Uh, there are nerves, as I mentioned earlier, that run from the brain down to the heart that, that create timing changes in the heartbeat but it's not making it beat. And here's how you can see that. When someone has a heart transplant, the nerves that go from brain down to heart cannot be reconnected. So you have a heart that's been put into the body of a, of a person that was beating when they put it in there that continues to beat. There's no connection to the brain. And so the heart is what's called autorhythmic. And what that means is that the, the engine or the motor in the heart is self-sustaining. It's, it's in the heart itself. And it's created by the firing of these cells called pacemaker cells. So as the heart beats, it produces a lot of bioelectricity. And here's where this gets interesting. It produces enough bioelectricity that it actually creates an electromagnetic field that surrounds us in 360 degrees and can be measured outside of the body about three to four feet away. It broadcasts out into space. And so we're measuring electromagnetic fields produced by the heart generating outside the body. Is there any way to influence how wide that force gets? Has that been studied at all? No, I think the quality of the field has definitely been studied. Here's what I mean by that. Is within electromagnetic fields, there are different frequencies. Think about them simplistically like, okay, it's radio stations, you know, different radio station broadcasting through the field. Now, what we do know is that if we are feeling a, an emotion that we would classify as negative, let's say we're feeling frustrated or we're feeling angry, or feeling hateful. It produces a very chaotic field. The frequencies in the field are not working together. Researchers call it an incoherent spectra. And so we're broadcasting that. Now, if we were to switch our emotional state, and instead of feeling upset and angry, we start feeling caring and appreciative, for example, that field changes. The frequencies start working together. A more harmonious field is being produced. It's called a coherent spectra. And yeah, we're broadcasting that too. So I think the revelation here, one of the revelations, is the fact that we are literally broadcasting our emotions from the heart out into space in 360 degrees, about three to four feet outside our body. So the quality of our field is being determined by our emotions and our emotional choices that we're making. And that's coming from the neural peptides from the brain or from the heart. Yep, that's right. But the heart's influencing through the electromagnetic field. Now, the study goes now, as I said, we're out of biology now. Let's go to physics. Now we're talking about fields. The questions we are looking at now, how do fields relate to one another? And what's the relationship beyond just this three to four feet? My belief is this, is that you know, we are all living in this field of energy that's reflecting back to us, not just what we think in our minds, but what we feel in our hearts. That this field is not 
bound by the normal uh, considerations of time and space. That just you are now uh, in another location. You're 7,000 miles away from me. But I believe that the energetically there's a field connection between us right now. And I believe that everyone who's listening to our conversation is also connecting, regardless of when they hear this interview, regardless of where they are, that there is a field of consciousness and an energetic connection between all living systems that takes place. The field we're measuring at the heart level and at this first stage is normal and easy to measure. It's nothing mystical about it. It's not an aura. It's not subtle energy. It's measured by using devices that normally measure electromagnetic fields, traditional science. But we are living in a field, and this field is what connects us all, and our heart's got the biggest, is to me, the most important point of connection to that field. Can I just right now just say something that you've just said so well that ties scientifically to something I've always found amazing and kind of, I think, gives a story to what you just said? Please do. So when people hear time and space is irrelevant, and whenever you listen to this, it doesn't matter. Some people will be cheering and saying yes, and other people will be a little skeptical and standoffish. Well, let's think about this. I love watching old movies on Netflix. Like, let's say like It's a Wonderful Life. It was written and produced in like the 40s, maybe? Probably, yeah. It's an old movie. It's only black and white, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really old movie. But how many people cry at the emotions and the scenes played out in real time and now in 2017 that some actor stimulated within themselves so long ago? That's that energetic field that are on the same wavelength. When you're having that emotion, I just watched You've Got Mail, and that was from 1998. I watched it yesterday. When I have those emotions now, I'm still in that same feeling place as they were when they were trying to produce this. So I think that's something to think about when you think about how can we have these real feelings about situations that happened so long ago, or even looking at old newscasts of something that's really sad or something that's really uplifting that happened decades ago. Think about your emotional reaction to that as you're watching it, even though those people may not even be alive anymore. How is that? Well, certainly there could be some other factors. I mean, emotional memory that's being triggered by the movie is another way of explaining that. But I think what you're speaking to is this, is that there was an emotional energetic transfer that happened when that movie was made at some point in the past that is still imprinting consciousness today. Yeah, because when you watch it, it's imprinting you and then you're interacting in the field of 2017. That's right. Exactly. You're in 2017. And I think every thought and feeling that we have is feeding the field. And so we're making a contribution to the field as we watch this movie made a long time ago that still has an impact on that field and influences consciousness. Okay, so keep going. I just thought that was an interesting way of explaining that time is irrelevant because emotion can be triggered regardless of when it's being shared by the other person. That's right. So the fourth way is the energetic communication. And that's where, to me, probably the most communication between heart, brain, and the rest of the body is taking place. But it also opens up a whole new field of scientific inquiry. So as I mentioned earlier, the researchers at HeartMath today are doing research on things like social coherence, what happens in groups of people, how do groups of people influence one another and the outcomes of a shared goal, for example. Really cool and interesting experiments are being done. Another field of inquiry that we've been doing for the last nine years now is looking at the Earth's energetic fields and our relationship to them. Because, see, the Earth produces energetic fields as well. Most people have heard of the geomagnetic fields, what a compass measures. That's an energetic field produced by the spinning of the iron core at the center of the Earth that surrounds our planet. 
Another field that works with the geomagnetic field is called the ionosphere. It's a less dense field that starts just above our atmosphere and goes another 120 miles or so up into space. And these two fields are protective layers around the planet that allow life to exist. Now, these fields are constantly fluctuating, and external influences are definitely changing them, like solar activity, for example, is changing the field. But there are other factors as well. It's also well known now, and more research is ongoing, but it's well documented now that changes in these fields are affecting human health and behavior. How so? Well, that's a good question. What's the cause and effect? But we know, for example, that when the changes occur in the field, that it affects brain frequency, for example, and also affects heart rhythms. And that's another subject. I don't want to go too deep into that, but our, our changing heart rhythms are directly related in, in times to changes occurring in the field. It turns out that some of the of the frequencies produced by the heart and brain are in exactly the same frequency range as those you find in the ionosphere. Same frequencies. There's a frequency match taking place between our hearts and our brains and the Earth's energetic fields. Talk about holism. Yeah, exactly. So where a lot of the studies have gone is showing that when there's, let's say, heightened solar activity and there's high activity in these fields, that there's an increase in things like heart attacks and strokes, crime, uh, admission to hospitals, fluctuations in the stock market. There's been a lot of correlation between changes in the field and what's happening to us physically and socially. It's also been noted when scientists have looked back historically and seen modulations and higher solar activity, which would be affecting these fields, that at times of those heightened uh, activity levels have been the eras in history where we produced some of the greatest art, literature, all of that, you know, it was produced during those times. So the fields themselves are not out to get us. Uh, they are influencers. And are we in one of those strong periods now? Yes. Uh, we're entering into one of high level solar activity for sure. And so we will see a lot of things. We'll see the chaos and the confusion. We'll also see, you know, great creativity emerging from people. We'll see new understanding. We'll see new cooperation. We'll see a lot of things. And it isn't just the fields. There's a bigger thing going on, but the fields are representative of that, of those fields. The study that we'll be publishing sometime this year uh, which I can't say a lot about because you, if you talk too much about a study before it's published, it won't be published. It's, it's called embargoed. But I'll say this. We've got a, a study we've been doing for a long time now looking at changes in people's heart rhythms, wearing monitors 24 hours a day for months. And we're seeing that there's a global synchronization taking place that people's heart rhythms and the emotional qualities associated through the surveys that we do are very similar at exactly the same times. So we are all literally synchronizing at a global level, and there'll be more research coming out about this, and, and the study will be published this year. And that's going to be a, a major breakthrough in understanding the real connections that we do have with each other and that we're all in this together, not just us, but every living system on this planet and probably beyond. And so that's the type of research we do today to take heart to the next level of understanding. And also, wait, just for anyone that's thinking, what is solar activity? That is solar flares from the sun, correct? Yeah, just more solar flares, and you know that would be a good way of putting it out. You know, there's solar winds that increase. There's solar flares. There's this massive amount of particles discharged from the sun that come in towards the earth. They hit these fields. The fields protect us from those uh, the sun's activity burning us up, and the fields are modulated and changed when that type of solar wind and, and charged particles hits the geomagnetic field in the ionosphere. And the sun has cycles for that. So it regularly gets hotter and, and has more of this activity at certain cycles. 
it seems so, yes, and there's more studies going on about the sun too, but you know, you see that you'll see these things. You can look on online at the NOAA website, National Oceanographic and Aeronautic Administration website, US website, and it's public data there and they show the solar activity going on all the time and they put out these alerts, you know, solar flare warning, you know, and it's like they have them ranked, you know, at the level and power that that they are detecting. And they this is something you can look at every day if you want to. It's public knowledge. This is amazing. Okay, so we've covered so much. Let's go back to the heart and how we can apply this in our lives. Good idea. To me, the science is important for the reasons that we stated earlier in our conversation. But what's more important to me is how we use the heart and the qualities of the heart to lead our lives and to lead more meaningful lives. I'm, a, I'm much more of a humanist than I am a scientist. I have scientists all around me, but basically, you know, what writers have said about me is that I'm basically a scientifically informed comedian. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm down to what, what can people do, you know? And to me, I talked earlier in our, our time together about the heart being intelligent. And it has this amazing intelligence that does influence the brain and it does provide intuitive information and guidance to us that allows us to make better choices as we navigate life. One of the most important attributes of the heart's intelligence is it gives us the ability to better understand and regulate our emotions. And I intentionally use the word regulate because I'm not implying suppression or repression of emotions, but I am implying that we are evolved enough now and are continuing to evolve in ways where we can understand how to choose emotions, how to make better emotional choices, because it's obvious that, yeah, we can feel angry if you want to, and we don't want to repress that. Nobody can stop us from doing that. But when I'm angry, I never make good choices. When I'm angry, it damages my relationships. When I'm angry, it doesn't move me forward in my own evolutionary spiral. It takes me backwards. And so you learn over time that some emotions serve you better than others. And you can begin to make better emotional choices. Now, if you try to do that just from thinking your way through it, it's a tough process. And isn't that what meditation is kind of typically taught to do is to watch it from the cerebral part of ourselves? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of meditations, of course. And so some of it is to take a more objective view and look back at yourself like it's somebody else and try to make you know choices around that. And there's a heart math technique that incorporates that step as well. But I think, you know, meditation sometimes is just to try to quiet everything. And that's good. I think we need those, those moments of peace. I did another presentation before I interviewed today to a group of people, you know, online. And, and I talked about peace and I talked about finding it inside. And, and I think it's important that we find these places inside that do slow things down and do calm things down. But life's moving quick and we can't always be there. We have to learn to be more nimble. Yes. And I'm not saying anything against meditation, to be clear. I just think that normally we're thinking about it rather than feeling from our heart about it with meditation a lot of times. Our relationship to life is far more through the feeling world than it is through the mental world. Even though we seem to think all the time or think we're thinking about everything? Yeah, but with every single thought and perception we have, there's an emotional response associated with it. And we are being bombarded with stimulation and information today. And it's creating a big mess because our minds are trying to keep up and there's all these perceptions going on and the, all these different feelings and emotions are swirling around inside us constantly. And it's a, it, we're not even equipped for it. I mean, the change is happening faster than we are designed to deal with it. So we have to learn to manage and regulate 
some of these internal responses that we have in order to, to stay clear, to stay balanced, to stay poised, to stay creative and productive. And that's where heart math and the tools and techniques that are in our training programs come in. We teach people very simple, practical, day-to-day techniques to use, to reduce stress, to shift the emotional state, to make decisions, to communicate. This is the core and crux of the heart math system and what we put out to the world. The science supports it all, which allows us to have respect, allows us to, to, to train and teach people in very mainstream context. But at the end of the day, it's about using this intelligence that we have to think and to feel differently. Okay, how do we do that? Well, as I mentioned, there's a system of tools and techniques. You can read about that on the heartmath.com website. And they're simple. There's a system of them. We provide certification for professionals to share them. We have like, you know, for example, there's 40,000 health professionals in the world that are using HeartMath to help their patients. Can you give us one of them that is useful that people can start doing right after they listen to this show? Absolutely. What I'll teach you, I'll share with everybody, is a very simple technique, but it's powerful. And you can do it with us right now if you'd like. If you're in a position to, you can close your eyes. If not, it's okay. What I'd like you to do is to focus your attention in the area of the heart, center of your chest. Just feel the energy just going from your head to there, you know, to the center of your chest. If it's helpful, you can put your hand there and just draw that attention down to that area. Now, with your attention there, what I'd like you to do is to breathe deeply, but normally, but just deeper than you normally would. Some nice deep breaths. And as you do that, I'd like you to imagine as if your breath is flowing in and out through the area of the heart. And we'll do that together now for a few breaths. Keep doing it, and I'll explain what's happening inside your body. The focus in the attention of the heart is helping to order those cardioelectricities. The heart-focused breathing that you're doing is balancing out a very important part of your nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which influences about 90% of all your body's functions. Breathing techniques are useful. They create a calming effect. They also set the platform for something more important to happen. So now we're going to move to the third step. This third step is called heart feeling. Continue to breathe as if the breath is flowing in and out through the area of your heart. And now I'd like you just to activate a regenerative emotion. Just feel appreciation for the good things you have in your life, for example. Don't make it a forced feeling. Just, hey, life's not so bad. Appreciate the good things you have. Or maybe it'd be easier for you to feel the love or care you have for someone or something in your life. Maybe it's a special person in your life or a place or a pet. People love their pets and just feel that love and care as you continue to breathe in and out through the area of the heart. Now what's happening is you're triggering the release of regenerative hormones into your system. The quality of your heart brain body communication is opening up. Information from your heart's going back to the brain, opening up higher perceptual centers in your brain. It's healthy for your physical heart. It's regenerating your nervous system. And as a result, you may feel a bit calmer. You may feel a bit more uplifted, maybe a bit more resilient. And what everybody's just learned now is what's called the quick coherence technique, a technique that puts us into a state called coherence. It's highly beneficial. 
It's when all the body systems begin to work together harmoniously. It is triggered by feeling that positive emotion. And then it's accompanied by more ability or more of a stream of those type of emotions. It's something you can do anytime, anywhere. Eyes open, eyes closed. Between one activity and another. When you're driving your car for a phone call or a conversation. It's a great way to be in alignment. We talk about that on the show a lot, and I can't think of a quicker way <laughs> or one of the fastest to get into alignment. And what actually I learned from Greg Braden teaching the effect, hopefully I'm a good student of what he shared, is he mentioned the heart rate variability, your respiration and your perspiration all sync up when that happens. Is that true? Yeah, I think what Greg was talking about was, you know, a definite synchronization between brainwave activity, which is measured through biofeedback devices and changes occurring in the rhythmic beating pattern of the heart through the heart rhythm changes. And that correlation has been definitively made as part of how we research and understand heart brain body communication. So, yeah, Greg would be would be accurate in what he says there. That's amazing. And also, is that connected in any way to being in coherence connected to the opposite of the fight or flight response of being out of the coherence, being more into the fight or flight feelings that we have day to day? Well, coherence could be a nice antidote for fight or flight. You know, uh, let's put it that way. You know, when we bring ourselves back to coherence, that's what brings us back to balance. Fight or flight is just this reaction that we're having, a stressful response to the external events taking place in life. Now, it's a survival mechanism we've had around for you know, a really, really long time as human beings, and it's still useful. But there's better ways to deal with things now than just fight or flight. And certainly engendering more coherence within our system, practicing techniques like quick coherence and other techniques in the heart mass system changes our coherence baseline. Or is we more coherent naturally as a result of that practice? Then we have less fight or flight experiences, which I think is a very good thing in these times. And how often do you think people should do it and for how long? Well, that's a personal question based on people's lifestyle. I'll put it to you this way. I do it all the time. When I open my eyes in the morning, before I move out of bed, I start focusing in the area of my heart and breathing through that area. Then as I get up, I try to, to develop some sort of a positive emotional attitude about things. I also do what's called a heart lock-in, another heart math technique, which is taking quick coherence in essence and sustaining it for longer periods of time. And I do that every morning for 15 to 20 minutes. Then during the course of my day, I try to reconnect with my heart in an ongoing way. And it was when I described the use of quick coherence a minute ago, I said you could do it anytime, anywhere. I can do it when I'm through with this interview, walking from my office here into the meeting room where I'm going to be in, involved in a meeting. I can do it during that minute that's going to take me to walk there. And uh, so there's lots of opportunity. So my suggestion is just sort of build it in casually to your lifestyle. You can't do it too much. But most importantly is do it sincerely. It isn't about the time that you do it as much as it is how much of your heart you really put into it. Okay, so what about the heart and the connection to intuition? This is something I speak about most on the show is intuition. So what role do you think heart has to do with it? Everything. To me, intuition is a field of information that's different than the field that we necessarily that we get when we, when we approach life through a more linear logical process. Both are important, but intuition is an expanded intelligence. It allows us to go into a, a whole new realm of possibility. Intuition is kind of knowing what you know without knowing how you know it. It's a direct knowingness. And if you think about how intuition plays out, for me at least, it plays out more as a sensing or a feeling than it does a thought. That's what's first. 
I get a sense that I should be doing something or that I should be should not be doing something. It's a feeling that I have about a person. It's a feeling that I have about a place. It's a feeling that I have about a business opportunity. It's a feeling first, and then it turns into thoughts and considerations. To me, I'll take a non-scientific approach, but I'll, again, an experiential one. Intuition enters my system through the heart and is distributed then to the brain. I access the field of intuition through my heart. The more coherent I am, the more I'm in a positive heart-related state, the more intuition I access. And so that's the way we approach it at Heart Math is you build that coherence inside yourself. You open the heart through the positive emotions associated with heart. You then have greater access to the intuitive field, and you draw that information into your day-to-day life. We teach a whole module on intuition in most of our training programs, and we talk about intuition as being practical intuition. That intuition does not have to be looked at as something phenomenal. It does not have to be only associated with something like a grand insight or grand discovery. That intuition is in the air and all around us all the time. And that we can learn to use it to make little decisions that can be important. That intuition is practical. I think one of the most important forms of intuition is the internal nudges that it's providing to us about where we need to change and where we need to grow. And that's often been called the voice of the heart. It's that impetus that we have inside that's telling us we need to change this. We need to stop doing that. We need to make more effort to do something else. Those are intuitive nudges, but it plays out into lots of different ways. Uh, For example, in the United States where I live, we have a lot of labor laws, for example, that don't allow us to ask personal questions in a job interview. If I'm interviewing someone for a job here at HeartMath, I can't ask them if they're married. I can't ask them if they have children. I can't ask them, do they have any health issues? Much less, do you have any any challenges going on in your life <laughs> that I need to know about? <laughs> I can't ask any of those questions. So I can be looking at a resume and I can be looking at job experience and you know educational background. But really what I'm looking at is a human being. And I'm trying to determine if this person is the right person for the job, if they're going to do a good job, if they're going to be happy here, if they're going to be able to work with others in the culture. I have to sense these things. And that's my intuition that's providing that insight and that guidance. It's practical. I'm using the intuition to help determine who to hire. And so there are hundreds, if not thousands, of moments in the day when intuition can be useful and prevalent. So we try to demystify intuition, take it down to a practical understanding, and also acknowledge the fact that as we are going through a accelerated uh, growth period in the world, really, all of humanity and every living system, that intuition is becoming more readily available. It's part of the new consciousness that's coming into our lives and our world. Intuition is going to be natural and normal in the the not-too-distant future. And so we are becoming more intuitive, and I think it's all directly related to heart. The more heart we have, the more we engage those qualities of the heart, the more that that heart-brain-body communication, energetic communication improves, the more intuitive we will get.
I love that. And for me personally, I've been focusing on intuition very heavily since I was 25. So that's about seven years now. And I've been coaching people on how to access their intuition for the same amount of time. And I can say intuitively, oh, that's funny because I'm intuition, pun here, no pun intended. I've intuitively always asked people, the first question I asked them when I try to help them access their intuition without knowing any of this heart math stuff was, are you a heart or a gut person? That has always been the question I always started with. Ask me why, I can't tell you why, but that has always been something I've always intuitively known. The intuition does not live in the head. However, I myself always sense my intuition from my gut. So as I've been studying, I don't know, maybe it does live in the heart and I'm just perceiving it from the gut, but most people I speak to, especially most men, but also I would say at least 50% of women are resonating more with the idea of being a gut person. And I keep wondering, and you know, there's no necessarily research that will say yes or no. These are probably things to still be discovered. But I wonder if the vagus nerve, because the vagus nerve, from my understanding, goes from the heart and also goes down to the gut area as well. I wonder if it's the whole communication between the two lower, the heart and the gut together that informs intuition. Because I know so many people seem to sense it like myself from their stomach. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they'd probably do. I just think, you know, I'll just put it to you this way. I think when you add heart to that process, you don't lose anything. Yeah, you gain much more. I definitely would agree with that. Okay, so last but not least, what internal doubts or resistance are you currently going through, if any? Well, because I put myself in a position for continuous growth, I have a lot of things that come up. And, you know, for me, I think it's always trying to find this place inside where really reevaluating whether I'm really approaching life through my own ambition, through wanting what I want, trying to get something out of life, or is it really about the mission of helping people and about letting some of that personal interest go and being more at peace with whatever happens in life? And that's a challenge for me. And I go through that all the time of having to question myself about that, about what's my real motive in this? Is this really about other people or is it still just all about me? That's one. Certainly, I find that another challenging area for me is in terms of of communication. I communicate well, but sometimes the tone of how I communicate, let's say in the business environment, is, is being perceived differently than it's intended by me. I can be very direct in a way. And I can feel like as if I'm being caring and just sort of being factual about things. But I notice that not everybody responds that way to that. There's a sensitivity, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, Jess, that I'm continually trying to develop a sensitivity to other people based upon the growth of my care. And that's a lifelong process. So I'm always, you know, finding that there's a resistance inside of wanting to slow down, wanting to be just more caring, wanting to take the extra time to really make sure that someone else is feeling cared for or that the communication has gone well for them. The momentum of life goes fast and sometimes I get caught up in it like anyone else. So returning back to the heart and finding that place of peace and inner balance in myself and trying to keep that engaged in my day-to-day activities each and every day of my life. And that's the practice for me. And that's the things that I have to work on. That's beautiful. And what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? Well, I would say, first of all, that, you know, this is an interesting time to be alive. That, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of problems and chaos and confusion and distortion happening in the world. But you're also living in a time period when we have the ability to grow and change quicker and more dynamically than ever before in the history of humankind. So starting out, I would say don't make this into something that feels like work. Look at it as an adventure. Look at it as an exploration. Look at it as a fun 
play for yourself. We don't need something else to do that's hard. We've got enough of that in our life. What we need to find is some a way for it to be more peaceful and more fun and more enjoyable. So approach it that way. Explore, learn, grow. Be willing to challenge yourself, of course. Be willing to make changes. But do it all with heart and with care. And the most important thing I would say to someone just starting out is always try to find a place inside yourself of self-compassion. Start there. You can't give what you don't have. So start with you and recognize that if you have an interest in this kind of subject matter and you're trying to grow and you're trying to change, recognize you're a good person doing the very best you can. And that you'll have times when you don't feel like you're doing enough, that you disappoint yourself, that you feel like you're disappointing others. All those feelings are going to be there. But when you find yourself there, go back and have a talk with you and your own heart, your own best friend, and say, it's okay. It's just one of those moments, one of those days. And recognize the goodness that you have inside yourself. Have compassion for yourself and then move on. So self-compassion, let that be an underlying driver of everything that you do as you go through this process of just starting out, so to speak, in this magnificent game of consciousness unfoldment that we're all playing in right now. So beautifully said. Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope people take some time to go back and rewind and re-listen to that heartbreak coherence part whenever they need it and also to head over to the site for more methods to do as well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jess. Appreciate you having me. And there you have it. Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for listening. If you want to check out more about HeartMath and how you can start doing this yourself or become a facilitator, head over to HeartMath.com. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C as in Heart Brain Connection Lively. And for show notes for this episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Howard Martin. And now for where I'm headed to next, I am staying here in London and continuing a training that I am doing and will be bringing you more details about that training very soon here on the show. But until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. 